Well, if you have your Bible uh, with you, let us uh, turn together to a few different portions of Scripture. The first one being Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We'll read verse 22. Then we'll do Hebrews chapter 5, 6. I think you know where Hebrews is. (laughs) And uh, Psalm chapter 2. And verse 6. And I'll also read from section 1 of the Confession of Faith, chapter 8, as well. Acts chapter 3. Let's pray together, and then we'll read. Father, we thank you for the word, and now pray, Lord, for the blessing of your spirit on our lesson tonight. For Christ's sake, amen. Acts chapter 3 and verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. So there we see the promise of Jesus being a prophet. Then if you turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5 and verse 6. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 6. Now we see the priesthood of Christ. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then finally in Psalm 2, we see the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Amen. Now let's also just hear from the confession of faith. I'm only going to read the first section of chapter 8. Of Christ the mediator, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man. The prophet priest and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Amen. Now I want to talk tonight about Christ as prophet, priest, and king with the emphasis being more on prophet and king, as we've been spending time already in the book of Hebrews on Christ our priest. I'm going to be relying a lot tonight from the uh, systematic theology of Wilhelmus of Brockle. He has a four-volume set out, and uh, he is a 17th century Dutch theologian. If um, you would like to read a systematic theology or portions of one that are very practical, I would recommend Wilhelmus a Brockel. In case you want to know how to spell that, uh, Wilhelmus is W I L H E L 
M-U-S, Wilhelmus. And then a brockle is got a funny spelling. It's a lowercase a, then apostrophe, then a capital B, lowercase a, apostrophe, capital B-R-A-K-E-L. And one of the treats about reading a brockle is how a very practical he is. He takes systematic theology, but then he always brings it down to a very applicatory level for uh, the reader and, and for the Christian. And that's one of the strengths of a brockle. So we're going to talk about Christ tonight as prophet, priest, and king. And yes, we will try to make that also very applicable to you as well. So let's talk about Jesus as one who holds these three offices. Jesus is called the Christ. Christ is a title of his. It's not just a last name, though it it seems like a last name, but it means Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. This, of course, is important when we discuss the subject of Jesus being prophet, priest, and king because of the oil uh, that was used to anoint prophets, priests, and kings for these offices. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 25, we read this, You shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. That is, there were very specific instructions uh, of in the ingredients and the proportions they were to use when making the anointing oil for the prophets, the priests, and the king. Also in chapter 30, in verse 32, it said that it shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. So it was a sin to replicate this recipe for this holy oil to be used in a general sense. The children of Israel were not to make a perfumed oil like this. It was to be separated for a very holy purpose, and it was to be used only for the offices that God had ordained. It is holy, says the Lord in Exodus chapter 30, verse 32, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it, or whoever puts any of it on a layman, shall be cut off from his people. Now, why would God go to such effort to say that this specific recipe of holy oil should be set apart and not for general use and shouldn't be copied for by anybody else? Well, it's because this oil was to be used to point us to Jesus Christ that these prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament were always signifying Jesus, who is the Holy One, the Messiah. He would be the Anointed One. And so these kings and prophets and priests were anointed with a special holy oil to show that they themselves were set apart, but they were set apart in these offices so that they could point us to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophets and kings were anointed along with the priest. You can read about this, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, 1 Samuel 16, and 1 Kings chapter 19. Abrakel says they signified two realities. Number one, that these 
uh, these men were foreordained and called to this specific office. And number two, that the Lord would qualify the person for the office. Now, what the New Testament tells us here is that Jesus Christ does take on all three of these offices. Now, that you couldn't do that in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant king was to be just the king. And we see how, for example, Uzziah got in trouble. Remember, boys and girls, when we were studying kings and King Uzziah went into the court and he began to offer a sacrifice that only the priest was supposed to be offering. And you remember how God judged uh, Uzziah, King Uzziah with a leprosy and he was a leper for the rest of his days. They could not be, kings couldn't be crossing over into the priesthood and, and that the priesthood was not um, to be crossing over into the area of the king. Remember how Jehoiada was very careful when they hid uh, the son of David in the temple for many years. He trained him, but he didn't take his place. And he taught the king, but he, when the king came to a sufficient age, then he you know, unveiled, if you will, this king to the people of God. Jesus Christ takes on all three of these offices because he is uniquely qualified to do so as the Messiah. So Hebrews 5.5, 5, Jesus Christ is made a high priest. Christ is inaugurated into his office of priest and of king and of prophet at his baptism. Now, obviously, oil of the old covenant was not used on Christ. Christ is bringing about a new covenant. And so he instead is uh, anointed by way of John the Baptist. You say, when did Jesus take on these offices? He took them on publicly at his baptism. And so, and, and there, by the way, is I think evidence that baptism is to be by pouring on the head or sprinkling on the head, just as the prophets, the priests, and the kings of the Old Testament were anointed upon the head. I don't think uh, it points to immersion. I'm not against it in the sense that, I mean, we don't reject immersion as people who come and join this church. Uh, but nevertheless, I think baptism properly done uh, involves something more akin to a, an anointing, a, a pouring out uh, on the head. And so we see that when Jesus is baptized, I believe John takes the water and he pours it over Christ's head. And I think that's backed up by the fact that the Spirit does what? The Spirit comes down upon him like a dove. So the Spirit, remember that the, the water and the oil were always symbolic of the ministry of the Spirit. And the Spirit seems to, in this account of the Gospels, amen what John the Baptist has done by sending the Spirit down upon Christ. And so even the meaning of Christ is what? Anointed one, not immersed one, but anointed. When was Christ anointed? He was anointed of the Lord in the Jordan. So again, I don't want to make too much of the mode of baptism here, but the mode should reflect the spiritual reality, shouldn't it? And what is the reality? The reality is Christ is being ordained to the office of prophet, priest, and king. And we know how prophet, priest, and kings were ordained in the Old Covenant. Here, it is the Holy Spirit himself who now is anointing Jesus as he stands in the river Jordan, John having baptized him with the water. 
Um, Abrakel says that Jesus Christ is qualified by virtue of his hypostatic union of his two natures. That is, he is both God and man brought together in one person. He is God manifested in the flesh. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And the extraordinary anointing of the Spirit fell upon him in John chapter 3, verse 34. The Spirit was uh, without measure, we're told, given to Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes these three offices of prophet, priest, and king upon himself, and he begins his public ministry in all three offices there at the River Jordan in his baptism. Now let's talk a little bit first about Jesus as prophet, and then I want to talk more. We've been talking about him as priest in the morning services, and then I want to talk more about him being also as king. Now, one of the verses that we read was Acts chapter 3, verse 22. It is a quote here from Deuteronomy 18.18. I happened to mention that this morning. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, you have the promise given to us by Moses of a future prophet, one that would be greater than Moses himself. We talked about that this morning. In Acts chapter 3, verse 22 to 26, what you have is the apostolic confirmation that that verse applies to Jesus himself. Jesus is the greater prophet. He's greater than Moses. We have other examples of Jesus as prophet. You could look at, look at Luke chapter 4, verse 21. <clears throat> Christ uh, is reading from Isaiah chapter 61. What does Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2 say? The Spirit of the Lord God is what? Upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. So Christ is reading from Isaiah he reads about the Spirit of the Lord coming down upon this person, anointing this person to preach good tidings to the meek. And then what does Jesus say in Luke 4, verse 21? He says, this reading is fulfilled in your hearing to the astonishment of the congregation. Jesus is announcing he is the prophet that Isaiah was speaking of in Isaiah 61. You have Matthew chapter 17, verse 5 where the Father proclaims that Jesus is a prophet. You have the Mount of Transfiguration, and what does God say? This is my Son, and you should listen to him. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus, we are told, went around to the villages and the towns in their synagogues, and he what? He proclaimed the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 7, in verse 16, the people even acknowledged that he was a great prophet. They said, a great prophet has risen among us. And they were never corrected by Jesus, by the way. Jesus acknowledged that statement. In Luke chapter 24, verse 19, as Jesus was with the men on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, um, the men on the road to Emmaus said, Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet... They're saying this to Jesus. They're sad. They're depressed. They think, you know, Jesus has died and that he hasn't come back to life according to the scriptures. And, and they say, this Jesus of Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. And, you know, and of course, Jesus, again, he acknowledges that, but then says, you know, you men slow of heart, do you not realize that 
you know, he was to be raised from the dead. Um, there are, Abrakel says, four duties of a prophet. And he says, all four of these duties are done by Jesus Christ. Now, what are these four duties? Number one, reception of immediate revelation from God concerning divine mysteries. The first thing that a prophet did was he received from God the word of God, and he would make that known. So, for example, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, we read this. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. And of course, Jesus would tell us that the Father would speak to him, that the Father, you know, that which the Father gave him, he spoke. Uh, Jesus tells us that. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the prophet receives revelation from God and speaks that revelation to others. John chapter 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. So again, Jesus saying that the Father shows Himself, the Father teaches Christ and Christ in His human nature, and Christ there would reveal these things. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things that must soon take place. And then one more, John 8, chapter 38, excuse me, John 8, verse 38, I speak that which I have seen with my Father. Now, in addition to receiving revelation from God, you have the proclamation and exposition of the word of God. So they received new revelation, prophets did, and they preached it. In Matthew chapter 5, for example, we see Jesus correcting the erroneous teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees concerning the law. You have heard it said, but what? I say unto you, you heard these things being taught, you know, love your friends, love, but hate your enemies. But I say unto you, you know, Jesus said, love your enemies. Mark 1.15, um, he commanded the people to repent and believe the gospel. And in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus told the people, do not think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. So Jesus would uh, teach the word of God to the people of God. And then foretelling, number three, foretelling of future events. Now, this is one that people often think of. Sometimes they think of this as the first thing that a prophet does, but actually it's, I think, a Brockle's probably right to start with receiving of revelation and giving of that revelation. But they do tell of future events. Um, for example, Jesus often foretold what awaited the Son of Man at Jerusalem. He would often tell them that the Son of Man is going to be arrested and crucified. But on the third day, he would be raised up. In Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, uh, Jesus foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. He said that within a generation, Jerusalem would be destroyed because of their great apostasy and disobedience. Their rejection of him as Messiah would lead to the destruction of the city and the ever ruin of the temple. The temple would be ruined and would not be rebuilt. And it would stay that way for the rest of human history. And then, number four, you have the confirmation of revelation by the performance of miracles. So in the example, in the Old Testament, boys and girls, 
You have miracles done by Moses. You have miracles done by Elijah and Elisha. And then even if a prophet didn't necessarily perform a miracle themselves, they often were witnesses to miracles. So, for example, Isaiah sees the miracle of the sun moving backwards on the sundial uh, in in the days of, of Hezekiah. You see Daniel saw the miracle of the mouths of the lions being shut while he was in it. And then once he was removed and his enemies were thrown into it, the lions pounced uh, on it. That, in a sense, was a miracle too, boys and girls. Um, And they were witnesses to to those miracles. Well, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ did even more miracles. In John chapter 7, verse 31, the people said this. The people wondered if the Messiah quote, would do more miracles than this man has done. So as many miracles as Elijah and Elisha may have done, Jesus did far more miracles than maybe probably all the prophets combined. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter testified in his Pentecost sermon that Jesus was a man approved by God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which he did uh, in the midst of you. And he says, ye yourselves know this. So Jesus must have done so many miracles that this was considered common knowledge. Peter says, this, this is common knowledge, I'm telling you, of all these miracles that he did. So how does Jesus serve as a prophet today? Well, here's where it gets practical and why Abrakel is such a wonderful uh, theologian in making it you know, practical for us. First of all, boys and girls, I want you to know Jesus continues in his office of prophet. So how does Jesus serve you as a prophet? Well, first of all, he gives you his Holy Spirit and his word. So one of the ways that Jesus, even though Jesus physically is in heaven, he's not here on earth and you can't see him and you can't audibly hear his voice, but nevertheless, he's still speaking to you by his spirit through the scriptures. And so Christ continues to minister to you as a prophet and as the head of his church. Also, he gives many gifts by his spirit to the church. And so we're told he gave us apostles who laid the foundation of the church over the centuries. He's given us innumerable teachers and preachers through the centuries, many of whom we continue to use. We're using one of them tonight here in Wilhelmus Abrakel. Uh, Wilhelmus Abrakel was a gift from God, and that was given to the church by the Spirit that Christ, as a prophet, sent to us. And so we're, we're blessed by people who have lived uh, in our current day, but in previous centuries as well. Pastors and teachers that preach Christ's word come as a way of Christ's prophetic ministry. And then Abrakel notes this that Jesus as a prophet administers his office of a prophet, both what he calls externally and internally. Externally and internally. Externally, he gives us the scriptures by the apostles and he preserves the Bible by his providence. That's externally. Internally, the spirit of Christ illumines the word to give you understanding, faith, and a love for the Word. How is it that you and I read the Bible 
and we come to a proper understanding of who Jesus is, and other people read the Bible and come to a very uh, great grave misunderstanding of who Jesus is. The difference is not that we're more clever. We are wiser or smarter. It's the Spirit of Christ working in us. The flesh profits nothing. It is the Spirit who gives understanding. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Christ as a prophet gives you the Spirit, quote, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Spirit gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So that it is the Spirit who illumines. So your mind is in the light and sees the proper meaning of the Scripture by the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, we are told that He gives you the mind of Christ. That is, you come to understand God's thoughts after Him. And that comes by way of the Spirit. In Luke chapter 24, verse 32, the Spirit also applies not only illumination to your mind, but warmth to your affections, so that the men on the road to Emmaus said to one another after Jesus departed, he said, did not our hearts burn within us when he spoke these things to us? Why were their affections moved? Why did did they feel a warming as they sat under the ministry of the word of God? It's the spirit of God. We've all experienced this, haven't we? We have come maybe a little spiritually sluggish, Maybe we didn't feel like going to church that evening. Maybe we, you know, we just thought, oh, Lord, get me through this, you know, service. And then suddenly we feel like a new man, a new woman. By the end, 60 minutes later, what happened? The Spirit of God came and moved us in our affections and gave us strength. The Spirit also in Ephesians 2.8 gives faith to you. He regenerates Uh, the believer, and he makes them alive. And when you become alive like a newborn babe, you begin to crave the word of God. God gives you the hunger, and then God feeds you from that word. Abrakel said that some receive the word only by the ear and with the natural sense. But he says others receive the word with renewed hearts, people who have been truly wrought upon by the Lord. And so Christ serves as a prophet to us. So what do we do by way of application? Well, number one, make use of Jesus Christ as prophet. Remind yourself that by nature you were blind. Mark chapter 8, verse 24 tells of a blind man, and he asked for a healing. But what's interesting about this healing was that it was not instantaneous. Abrakel points out for us here that it was over time through many applications of Jesus' hands to his eyes that he began to see. Remember the first time uh, Jesus asked him, what do you see? And he said, well, I see men walking as trees. His sight still wasn't perfect. And so it is that we must realize that Jesus, as he ministers to us, may bring many applications to our eyes. We need Christ's word. He gives you Sight by degrees. We don't see everything all at once. But the healing takes place 
over time. Secondly, we ought to pray for the Spirit to illuminate our understanding and pray that the Lord would give understanding to everybody who attends the services of the Lord, that God would bless the children, the visitors, people who are unconverted, that he would bless the converted, he would bless those who are mature in the faith, that they would still find meat to eat, but the babes would find milk to drink. Number three, we should also be reminded to avoid sin. Sin grieves the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the prophets. And this Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, our great prophet. Many people are lost due to fornication or idolatry, and it causes them to lose the blessing of the Spirit. Sin can make people theologically confused, but it can also make us morally confused. Idolatry can cause people to turn away from God to the creature, and it suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. Error in life often is accompanied by error in doctrine and vice versa. And so we must take care that we walk on the narrow path. Number four, we should seek Jesus Christ himself, who is our prophet. Christ himself is truth and life. I am the truth, Jesus said. I am the light of the world, Jesus said elsewhere. There is no darkness in him, John tells us. And so if, if you are not yet converted to Christ, this would be our first business to see to it that you come into the light of Jesus Christ. You come into the truth of Jesus Christ. For there you will find life for your soul. And this ought to be your main mission in life until you find him. Number five, the Proverbs tells us to buy truth and do not sell it. Make the Bible and sound Christian books the staple of your reading. Abrockel says this, quote, Ignorance is the cause of all sin. Ignorance is the cause of all sin. Number six, Christians need to be conformed also to the image of Jesus Christ in his prophetic office. And that is, as we try to model the life of Christ within our own lives, we also need to realize that we have prophetic duties to make Jesus known to others. For example, in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, we have the promise from the scriptures that your sons and your daughters, speaking about those in the church, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, we are told. And then when we get to Acts chapter 2, what do we find? We find Peter telling us that this prophecy in Joel chapter 2 is being fulfilled in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to the church. In Revelation chapter 5, in verse 10, the, the people of God are called kings and priests. And therefore, we can also, I think by way of implication, also recognize that we are prophets as well. That all the offices of Christ are realized in a small degree among his people because of our union with Christ. In 1 Peter 2.9, for example, we are told that we are a royal priesthood. And so we are to acquire a clearer knowledge of the gospel. And we are to instruct and exhort and comfort others with that knowledge that we have of God's word. Now the minister does this publicly. As you know, the minister does this publicly, but members, says Abrockel, 
members must do so privately. Uh, Even women are called to this prophetic task. For example, we see Priscilla along with Aquila showing Apollos the better way of understanding in private. We also know that older women to be teaching younger women. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 that prophesying, teaching, proclaiming the word is better than speaking in a tongue. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, we are told that we are to teach and admonish one another. If anyone is straying, we are told you who are spiritual should go and restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We should want to make Christ known. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. This is my beloved and this is my friend. There's a great line there. This is my beloved and this is my friend. Speaking of Jesus Christ, we are to tell others that. Abrockle notes that we should have compassion on lost friends, family, and neighbors. Uh, If a small child were to fall into a swimming pool, we would drop everything to rescue them. We are told in Luke 15, verse 10, there's more joy to be found in the conversion of a single person than a hundred people who have no need of repentance. And then what a blessing to the church if every Christian took up prophetic duties. We're told in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, quote, Luke says, they were scattered abroad preaching the word. And some commentators have noted about that verse, that that verse uh, preaching that's translated in English as preaching in the Greek, could be translated also as gossiping. They were gossiping the gospel as they went, uh, as they were scattered, and as they went into the diaspora, they were gossiping the gospel. So we, um, uh, we need to be exhorted to personal evangelism. Um, Brockle notes that we learn evangelism by doing evangelism. He says, even if you know very little, teach what you know. <laughs> If you know three words, teach two of them, he says. (laughs) The fruit belongs to God. The power is his. But we do have a duty to speak of the things of the Lord. He says, Brockle says, If we wait till we are sinless, we will never evangelize. Let it be known. Um, You know, and he he says this in the context here, you know, we have friends, we have family, and they know we blow it, okay? They know we're sinners. And he says, let it be known that you are aware of your failures and that you do also grieve over them and you seek to improve in those areas. Uh, that is, don't let your imperfections, you know, keep you from sharing the word of God with others because you know that your audience knows of your failures. Does that make sense? So if you acknowledge in that, uh, that you are aware of this and, and you hate it yourself. Um, don't let that keep you from sharing. He says, be diligent and fervent in spirit. Avoid laziness in the duty of sharing your faith. He says, begin with people who do not intimidate you, if that's where you need to start. Uh, children and servants, if necessary, he says. And then he says, be watchful of pride and be much in prayer as you do that. Now, I want to talk... Um, I'm running out of time here. Let's talk just briefly about, we may take this up when I get back, about the office of king. The third office of Jesus Christ, in addition to prophet and priest, is that of a king. Um, there is a threefold manner of Christ's kingship. 
One is the kingdom of power. Two is the kingdom of grace. And three is the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of power, of grace, and of glory. Now, what do these three mean? Well, Jesus Christ is the same in substance with the Father. And thus, with the Father, he rules over the entirety of the creation, meaning he governs, Christ governs, everything in the universe, all things. That is the kingdom of power. The kingdom of grace is that of a mediator. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and his people. So kingdom of power, Christ is reigning and ruling over everybody, believers and unbelievers. That's kingdom of power. Kingdom of grace, Christ exercises his kingship there with specific reference to the church and his people. There it's a mediatorial kingship. And and then thirdly, the kingdom of glory. Christ is the ruler over all the elect angels and men. Now, over the creation, all honor, glory, and power belongs to Christ. Even if there were no creatures, all of this would belong to Christ. Christ was all glorious even prior to creation. All power belonged to Christ even before he said, let there be light with the Father and the Spirit. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11 says, Yours, Lord, are greatness and might, majesty, victory, and splendor. For all in heaven and on earth is yours. For all in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is kingship. You are exalted as head over all. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has set his throne in heaven, His dominion extends over all. The Lord institutes governments under himself. Christ told Pilate that Pilate would have no authority. Remember this, boys and girls, in the day that he was on trial before Pilate? And Pilate says, don't you know, I have the authority to put you to death. And Christ responds, you would have no authority except it was given to you by my Father in heaven. The Father has now given all that power and authority to Christ. After the resurrection and the ascension, what do we find? Matthew 28, verse 19. All power and authority has been given unto the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, I have another four pages of notes. Three pages is usually a 45-minute sermon. So let's close here. We'll talk more about the kingship of Christ here in a couple Sundays. Let's uh, 